Hello, this is Rabbi Rob Doberson, and welcome to this edition of Wrestling and Dreaming. Each year when we come to this portion of the annual cycle of the Torah readings, I immediately think of my grandfather Doberson. Now, I never met my grandfather Doberson. He died many years before I was born, but he was a carpenter and a building contractor. He built houses. When I look at the Torah portions that we're about to read, Parshat Truma, Tetzaveh, and later Vayakel and Pekude, which talk about the instructions for the building of the Mishkan, the sanctuary, the portable sanctuary in the desert, which our ancestors brought into the land of Canaan, and then it was replaced eventually generations later by the permanent Mishkan, the permanent Beit Mikdash, the permanent sanctuaries in Jerusalem. When I look at this portion, which talks about all of the instructions for the building, and think about what's going to be coming next week where we read further instructions in Parsha Tetzaveh, and then go back in two weeks to Vayakel and Pekude, where the Torah records that the instructions were followed and gives detailed uh, account of the fact that all of these instructions were followed and that Mishkan was built as it was supposed to be built, I realize every time I read these portions, that whatever skills my grandfather had, and I'm sure he had many, whatever talents he had, whatever uh, uh, skills he had towards building and imagining what buildings would look like in his uh, building contractor business, he did not pass down to this grandson because I haven't got the slightest idea of what's going on in a lot of this Parsha. I get lost in all the details. I can't picture how things fit together the way they, the Torah talks about. And I just find it not to be the most interesting portion of the Torah because I find myself frustrated not being able to follow the specifics. So whatever my grandfather knew, he didn't pass down to me. I'm not that good with tools. And I, uh, when, when we've done work around the house and been presented with blueprints, it takes me much longer than it should to understand what I'm looking at. So I find these portions frustrating. So when you find a portion of the Torah frustrating, what you have to do is find something in it that interests you. And I find something. I found something a few years ago that fascinated me, and I've looked into it a little bit. And that is one aspect of the tabernacle. And that aspect is the presence of two figures, two winged figures called Kruvim cherubs, which were seated, these two figures, on either side of the uh, covering that was above the ark. I can't even explain it. I can't even describe it. I'm still frustrated with my, uh, uh, with my spatially challenged mind here, but you get the general idea that these kruvim, these two uh, figures, these two winged figures, were sitting on opposite ends of the covering over the ark, where according to the tradition, God's voice would emanate when the Shekhinah, when God's presence would come into the Mishkan and into the tabernacle and uh, would be present among the people. These two figures fascinate me. They fascinate me for a number of reasons. The most important being, why would the Torah mandate that there be figures within this tabernacle, within the sanctuary, when the entire purpose of the Torah seems to be to move us away from any, anything that even seemed like idolatry. 
Why would you have them there? That question I really can't answer. Uh, now, it's true that, the, that the, the vast majority of the people of Israel would never have seen the Kruvim, but according to the Torah, they knew that they were there. And so the question is, why? Why would we have, why would the Torah have figures that could potentially seem like the, seem like idols that should be worshipped inside the tabernacle. I really can't answer that again. Maybe it's a way of weaning the people away from idolatry because they're there, but they're secondary figures. I'm not sure. But what fascinates me about these Kruvim are several characteristics that they have according to the tradition and according to the Torah, which I think we can learn from as human beings. So I'm going to use these figures to talk about three things that we can use, that we can deduce from them about what we should do as human beings regarding our spiritual lives. First of all, what did they look like? We don't know. But according to most of the rabbinic tradition, they were childlike figures. And there's a midrash that connects an Aramaic word for a child to the word kruvim has nothing to do with each other etymologically. It's a pun, but it was enough of a reason for the rabbis to say that the figures were childlike in appearance. And that brings the first thing that we can learn. When it comes to our matters of spirituality, we have to have some childlike awe within us. And I know I've spoken about this before in, in the podcast regarding Jewish tradition in general. And certainly when we think about what the idea of God means in our lives, we, we absolutely have, have to consider philosophical ideas. We have to think deeply about them. But we also have to have a sense of childlike awe, that that has to be part of our approach to thinking about God. We have to think about God in terms of the wonder of a child, the awe of a child of the world in general. And so I think that the Kruvim being characterized as childlike gives us a little bit of an understanding of something that we should incorporate into our spiritual searches. Secondly, the Torah seems to say something that's paradoxical, but maybe it's not. It says that the faces of the Kruvim were facing each other. They would face each other, but they were also facing the covering of the ark where, in fact, God's presence would, would dwell. Now, it's possible to assume that we're all on the same uh, level, height level, so that you could be looking at one one cherub could be looking at the other right across this particular plane where God's presence would, would appear. But it's also possible to think that there's a little bit of a paradox here, that they were facing each other but also able to look downward, so to speak, from where they were sitting high above the, uh, the covering of the ark. I like that image. And some commentators have liked it as well because they say it tells us something very important, that we have to do two things at, at once in our spiritual lives. We have to look face-to-face -to, -face to other human beings, to the human beings that we are closest to, to the ones that, that need us, the ones that we need, the people we come into contact with. We have to, to have face-to-face -face relationships with them. We have to have seriously deep relationships with other human beings. At the same time, 
as we're trying to understand our relationship with God, as we're trying to look to God, as we're trying, as the Kruvim did, metaphorically to lift our wings upwards, as it says about the Kruvim, about the cherubs. So this paradox is really the paradox we all find ourselves in. We need to find a spiritual meaning in our relationship with other people, but we also have to find a spiritual meaning in something beyond ourselves. And so I think that for me, whether you say both were on the same plane and one was up above and, they, and there was this paradox of them looking down and looking across at the same time, whichever way you understand it, both are important. Both the idea of face-to-face -face with other human beings and a relationship with God. And finally, the third point. It's amazing to me to think about this, that these kruvim, these cherub, these childlike, if you will, angelic figures, winged figures, are looking and concentrating on an empty space because there's nothing in the space that they're looking at. It's a space filled by God's presence, according to the tradition, God's unseen presence. So what do I learn from that? Well, what, are, what happens when we begin to think about what we as individual think about God? We're guided by our tradition. We have so many statements in the Torah, through the rabbis, through, from the prophets before, from philosophers, ideas that about what God is, who God is, what God does, and if you look at Maimonides, for example, he will say, I believe with perfect faith that, and we'll come up with 13 principles about God. These are very important for us. They're very important to guide us in our thinking. But I think about that empty space that the Kruvim are looking at. And I say to myself, there's an important message here. And that message is that no matter how wise, no matter how perceptive, no matter how critical the, tr the teachings of past generations are, there has to be at least some empty space there for us to fill with our thoughts. We can't just take by, by faith everything that was said before by our ancestors no matter how brilliant they were, no matter how perceptive, no matter how divinely inspired they were, if you want to take that, 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 um, that conception. We need to have at least some empty space that we can fill with our own personal thoughts about God, with our own personal ideas. And that's really the challenge for us. The challenge for us is to fill the empty space with something that speaks to our understandings of, of our relationship with God in the world, because each of us can be perceptive, each of us can be thoughtful, each of us can find the relationship with God that means something to us. Yes, guided by our tradition, but with an empty space there for us to fill with our own thoughts. So those are thoughts that I think about when I think about these Kruvim, that we need to be childlike at times in our awe and wonder when we think about what God means to us. We need to find sanctity and find, find spiritual meaning in our relationships with each other as well as in potentially our relationship with God. And finally, let that empty space remind us that it cannot, it does not only, it cannot only be filled 
by what we've learned from our ancestors and from our teachers. But it should be filled, that part of it should be empty for us to fill with our own thoughts and our own ideas. So that it becomes our thoughts about our relationship with God, not just a matter of tradition, as beautiful as that tradition may be. Until next time, thank you.